The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, my very special guest is David Christopher. He's an award-winning author. His book is The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit. This book has really intrigued me and many others. David wrote this book from his heart, and the style is beautiful. It's story, form, poetry. It's a beautiful collection of dialogue. And David's going to give us a lot of insight here this morning. He says that we have needed a new story in our world about how we came to be and where we're going. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I appreciate the invitation to your show. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, where are you today? I am in uh, Northern California in Sonoma County. Ah, Northern California, you you are, the grapes are all picked and the vines are all bare and... um, They are, yes. It's the beginning of a new season. Yes, yes. We're hoping for a bit of rain, though, however. We are missing that. Yeah, it's been a bit dry. Yes, yes. So, David, you have an interesting path to this book. Um, You are a former airline pilot. You were a key player in the finance industry. You have taught people about managing their finances. Um, You are someone who... um, looks at the world differently. Talk to us a little bit about why you became interested in the whole concept of what you call the holy universe. I was I was in the typical career path, you know, in addition to being the, the airline pilot and, and flight instructor too and doing work with uh, financial uh, things financial. I also worked in a corporation too, as a uh, as a um, as a trainer, and I was just going along with the program that um, what the sage in this book calls the the story of modern mind, which um, you know one of those stories is just you know find a job, do your work, um, buy stuff, and just and repeat. And continue with that without really questioning too much about what's going on. And even very early on when I was a child, I had a really deep sense that something feels off here. Um, I especially remember um, 
being um, in one particular uh, happening in our in where in the place where I grew up, they the folks came along from the government and um, from the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and tore up a creek near our house and channelized it. And I remember feeling just so awful about that. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you destroying this creek? Ostensibly, it was to protect people from a flood. And yet, I, I just knew that, he, well, that sounds good, but it doesn't feel good. It doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, this, this, this sense of why are we on this planet was always in the background of, of, my, of my psyche, really, as I was growing up and as I became an adult. And even though I had long since left the church, I grew up in the Episcopalian church, and that story that they gave there was kind of a, it was a similar story in that, you know, we're, there's a separation between us and nature. There's a separation between us and God. And there's something about those stories that just didn't sit right. And then, as probably about 15 years ago or so, I started becoming familiar with the works of Brian Swim and Thomas Berry. Brian Swim is a mathematical cosmologist, and Thomas Berry was an Episcopal—I'm sorry, a Catholic priest. And other people who started looking at the science and the theology in a different way. That wait a minute—we're not separate from each other. We're not separate from nature. We're not separate from the cosmos. We're an integral part of this. And even the science is beginning to echo those stories that we actually belong here. So I became very intrigued in that and I started reading more and more about it. And I found myself actually wanting a story, actually hearing the story similar to what I grew up with. I wanted to hear it in the style of like, in in kind of the poetic style of the King James Bible. I love the way the Bible sound. I wasn't too keen on some of the interpretations of it. But I really wanted to hear this story told, not just from an academic side, but from a metaphorical side. I wanted to hear a story. So that's a, that gives you a little bit of the idea of where the genesis of this book came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you, you call this um, spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. In between the time where you left the church and you got to the point of writing this book, where did you find your spiritual nourishment? I actually didn't have a whole lot of spiritual nourishment. I think mm. that was a big part of the problem, is that there was nothing out there that really spoke to me, and there was nothing, there were no institutions that I found that really spoke deeply to my spirituality. So mm. it sort of was languishing. It was faded. It was in the closet. And and to me, the, the term spirituality really has to do with what is, it has to do with the nature of one's connection with, with that which created us. And even, so it, with that definition, even an atheist can have a spirituality, because if, if one views this whole process as something that doesn't have any kind of, 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 super, of any kind of supernatural or any kind of mysterious process behind it, it still created you. And there is a connection between you and that, that which created you. In fact, there, the connection starts to blur that where, is, where does a person end and where does a person begin when you're exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide with the trees, when you're exchanging food with the web of life, when you're drinking water and then, bring it in, and then passing it out into nourishment for other beings. There is no separation at a very fundamental level. 
So as I, you know, it was really that that time when I started listening to Brian Swim's work, and there was another woman uh, named Sister Miriam McGillis, a Catholic nun, who was really going out into these edges of looking at this new story and this new spirituality, and that's where I started to really started exploring more of a spirituality, really started exploring <clears throat> my connection with with with, with uh, creation. Mm. So I love it that uh, Dwayne Elgin is the one who really encouraged you to <laughs> write. And um, talk, talk a little bit about that conversation. Well, yes. Actually, what happened was is that he, um, you know, I, I, as, as I was going through all this um, learning, I heard the refrain from a lot of people, we need a new story. We don't have a new story. Um, you know, the, the sage talks in this book about the story of ancient mind, which is what we had before we, we got serious about systemic agriculture about mm-hmm. 10,000 mm-hmm. years ago. And then that's when modern mind emerged with the story of separation and the story of the centrality of humanity. And I kept hearing people say, we're in between stories. We need a new story. We, 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 we can't function without a story. And I found myself being frustrated at, well, why doesn't someone just tell a story? Why don't, we, why don't you tell a story? And I actually asked that question of Dwayne at one point. Why don't you guys, why don't you write the story? And he looked at me and said, well, why don't you write it? You've been <laughs> studying this as long as anyone. And, you know, I'll, I'll help you. And he did. For the first couple of years, he was my, my, primary con- my primary coach and contact and cheerleader and cajoler in mm. getting the first draft of this put together. So... Um, and it felt very audacious, too, because I didn't feel like, you know, who am I to, to speak about these, these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. But it's something that, as, a, as the process came to me, it really was something that came through me, really. It wasn't, these aren't my words. These are words that came through me. I mean, I had, I, I, it, it's kind of a, my own teacher and I talked about this, that it felt like, you know, yes, you're the author, but spirit is also the author, and that's just a mysterious process that a lot of I've heard a lot of people talk about too, where they just you know I would at one point I would set the pencil down after I wrote something and look around and say where did this come from? Because this, this sure sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think that that when we get so in touch with our work, what we are supposed to be doing, what we came here to do, that's what happens. Right. It is. It is so. It's almost magical. It's and a flow. It's a. It's a wonderful flow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and you know, it, it is so important for us to. I call it being a yes. It's it's so important for us to be a yes to it, even though we may not know where it's going. Certainly not necessarily know where it came from. Mm-hmm. And we need to simply be a yes to that. I think that's one of the most challenging things. I, I know that there are people, including me, who you know sometimes will start arguing with that <laughs> brain. You know, arguing with that. What? I I can't do something like that. That's crazy. And here's all the reasons why. And you know, did you find yourself doing that at all? What the biggest struggle, and one thing that I, that I, one thing I can offer to your listeners too, is that is it's not only those th- those old stories within you 
that say, you know, this is crazy, this is ridiculous. They're also the stories of the wider culture because we mm-hmm. are in a culture that doesn't, that it actually is, is a destructive presence right now on the, on the planet. Mm-hmm. And you're, it hasn't quite figured out how do we reward people financially, you know, in whatever ever accolades, how do we reward people who are really doing the work that really does need to be done? The work mm-hmm. around ec- ecological work, the work around social justice, even the work around spirituality, you know, those are the three, in, in, to, to my way of thinking, those are the three crises of the age that um, what the sage calls is driving the great transformation that we're now, we're now facing. So mm-hmm. that's part of the challenge, too, is not only listening listening to the old stories within you and trying to really reason with them or not listen to them, but also to the wider culture that is saying, what do you mean? You, you, you can't be doing that. This is, not, this, is not, this is not good. So, And one thing I found very important is you have to find your tribe. You have to find your people. You have to find whatever, it ta- whatever that network is that supports you in, in your awakening. I find that to be a, a vital, vital part of this whole process. You know, I... I absolutely appreciate that. You have to find those that support your thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I'm wondering about this whole concept of we are in this culture that is a, really a destructive force. Did, when did that happen? You know, I mean, you write about the story of the ancient mind and the creation of human consciousness, and it feels like this, there's a real recognition of coming back to consciousness and so much more focus on that today. But when did there stop being a, a focus on consciousness? When, did there, when was this shift toward what you call the modern mind? Well, it happened about 10,000 years ago, as I mentioned earlier. And right about then, you know, give or take a, a millennia or two, Right about then, we started settling in places and started getting very serious about systemic agriculture. And there are a lot of theories as to why we did this. And, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, I, I touch very, very lightly on those ideas. But what, whatever the cause, that's when we started having surplus agriculture. That's when we started really shifting our, our relationship to the web of life that it was no longer something we were part of and that, and that we knew intimately and we knew how to survive in it. We knew how to thrive in it, really. Um, mm. It's interesting, just as an aside, you know, the, the quote of, oh, I forget which philosopher said, um, I think it was Hobbes who said, was it Bacon? I can't remember one of those, but one of the philosophers who said uh, life, in, life was nasty, brut- brutish, and short. And that was the idea of that's what it was like back in the times of ancient mind. That's what it was like to live as someone who's not part of a, of a civilization. And that's a story. That is a story yeah. that isn't necessarily true. So it's in a way, it's one of the, one of the um, you know, one of some, and there are a few examples in the book that talk about the way modern mind scares itself into thinking that it's, into believing that it's better off being in the civilizations that we're in. Not to say it's done everything wrong. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful things that Modern Mind has done, you know, works of art as far as technology and as far as um, health and and medicine. There's amazing things we can do. But it has come at a great price. So when we started 
having that story of separation 10,000 years ago, we started creating hierarchies. We started creating, we settled down into villages, which became cities, which became chiefdoms, then nation-states and civilizations. And we started stratifying into castes, where we had people at the top who were in charge of all the wealth. And then those people who served them, and then the, at the bottom, the great majority of people who were cast into, uh, into uh, manual labor to support that civilization. So that's when we started telling ourselves the story of separation, that, that humanity is the grandest creature in the universe, and the earth was created solely for its sake. And then about five, you know, four or five hundred years ago, with the Enlightenment, with the Renaissance, with the Industrial Revolution, we started telling ourselves an even deeper story of, of uh, disconnection. And um, in, the, in, the, in the book, the, the story was, was this, the universe is dead. The earth is only an insignificant rock spinning off into a lifeless cosmos. Humanity is a mere accident. Indeed, all of life is a vacuous accident. And there's a little bit more than that, but this is the story that I was taught as I was growing up. When you turn away from the religions, this is the only story that was offered to me. Mm. I actually had a physicist friend who read this, and, he, and, and in the margins he commented, this is exactly what I was taught in college, that we are separate and we have to find meaning in, in, in a meaningless mm. universe. Mm. So, th- so that gives you a sense of where, you know, an answer to your question of where did right. this, where did this separation start? Right, right. Well, we have more to talk about with David Christopher when we come right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo with my very special guest today, David Christopher, the author of The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit. So, David, in the last segment, you mentioned how much the story of the modern mind, this world we live in, this story of separation, um, is alive and well and has been for about 10,000 years, and that with that, we have a resurgence and an attempt to bring back and almost regrow this sense of consciousness, human consciousness. I'm curious about what's going on in the technological world. We are steeped in tech. It seems like the concept of connecting people is what the base belief is, and yet what we all see is that well, maybe people are connected in some ways, but it doesn't seem like relationships are very deep. And how is this affecting us and where we are going as a society? And how does that then affect our spirit and our spirit world and our spirituality? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's... um. <clears throat> There's actually a chapter in the book that talks about reverent technology, and mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the ideas that the, the sage explores is the idea that technology is the great magnifier, and technology is the great separator. It's a great magnifier in that it, it very much magnifies our power, our individual power. Um, I mean, for, just as in, for instance, petroleum, uh, gasoline, is the most amazing substance the most powerful substance. I've heard one person estimate that the average, you know, the average person in the United States has at their at their fingertips 50 the equivalent of 52 slaves as far as how much power and you know as far as the, the, mm. the fossil fuels and electricity and whatnot at their disposal, being able to turn on the lights, being able to connect with people, being able to drive these distances that we drive, being able to travel the way we travel, eating foods from, from um, all over the planet. We have, in a way, taken the bounty of the earth and turned that power to our own ends so that we have, it is almost as if we have the, you know, what uh, Richard Heinberg calls energy slaves. So it magnifies our power. It also has the potential to separate us. 
to separate us from each other and also to separate us from the consequences of our actions. So when we fill in the gas tank, for instance, um, one one thing that they talk about, you know, we fill up the tank, we fill up the tank, and we don't see the where the where the where the oil came from. Um, We water the garden, and we don't see where the water comes from. Um, we, we use our devices and we don't see where the, the rare earth animal, I'm sorry, rare earth elements came from that mm. created our devices. And this is primarily for folks who are in the, the wealthier West, too, even though some, some of us may not feel so wealthy. Right. We're very wealthy compared to uh, much of humanity. So that's what is up, 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 what we're up against, is that even though, and the sage is not advocating, and I'm not advocating that we throw away all technology, but we do have to learn how to use it in a way that doesn't separate us, that we have to be very deliberate in reconnecting with each other, in reconnecting with the web of life, in reconnecting with the cosmos. We have to be even more vigilant to see that, wait a minute, this, yeah, I'm, I'm, this technology is actually separating, separating me from my, from my spirituality. It's separating me from my creation, from the creation, from the process of creation. So that certainly is something that we have to pay attention to, um, both individually and also collectively, too. Um, and that, again, is part of the reason why I wanted to bring this, this book forward, is not only to tell the creation story, but then ask, well, so what? What does this evolutionary story have to teach us in terms of you know, these, these stories of modern mind that we're facing and also the personal stories that we're facing? And um, one of the things that the say suggests about, you know, as far as technology is concerned, is just what about, you know, in developing technology, the way we, in which we typically develop technology is in the way of, you know, will it sell? Will someone be able to make money on this? Will we be able to recover our investment on that? And that is a primary way that we decide whether, whether or not a new technology will come into being. And the SAG suggests that we need to have we need to have we need to change the way things are set up. We need to change our systems so that everyone affected by any technology can ask important questions, such as what are the underlying stories that drive the desire to use this? How harmonious are these stories that are underneath that drive to use this technology? How harmonious are they with the creation? How harmonious with the web of life? What are the social, political, and cultural consequences of using this technology? Who does this really serve, and how equitably will it be shared? And who's going to represent the, the humanity and the web of life as, as we deliberate the use of this technology? And finally, if it's brought into the world and it's found to be harmful, can it be corralled easily or recalled yeah. and abandoned? Those are questions that, that really we don't ask. And it's, we, we are challenged by the fact that we need to ask these questions. And if we don't, then, you know, the web of life knows what to do with a species that has run amok and is over, overshooting itself. And, you know, we're, we're, we're facing, you know, the, the, the sixth mass extinction that we're facing has us on the list. So that's the downside. The upside of it, that these kinds of conversations can, can help us to have much more meaningful lives and much more clear reasons why we are here and what is really important to us. So that just gives you kind of a taste of uh, some of the dialogues that they talk about um, when, when addressing technology. So, you know, I, I love that you, in some ways, 
leave us with more questions than answers in this mm-hmm. book. Um, and yeah. I have a sense that, um, you know, you really are supporting individuals to dive deep to find their own answer or to find their own worldview, essentially. Um, I'm, I'm curious about some of the... Um, there's there's a, a place in the book where you talk about um, developing one's worldview, and you talk about checking into your for yourself. Where did that come from, right? And as far as, was, as go ahead, I'm sorry. As far as your own worldview, you know, it's like it's like you you ask the question, you know, think back to where your own worldview. Developed. You know, where is that? And as I read that, I thought, well, now that's really fascinating. I wonder how many of us, it's probably easier for us to identify our worldview than to identify where is the genesis of it. And how important is it to be clear about where it formed in us? Where the worldview forms? Yeah. Um, I think it's vital. I think, um, you know, the, the story, and they are stories, they are worldviews. And um, just as an aside, one thing about worldviews is that they are, they do have, and they, they, they do have an evolutionary process, an emergent process, but they do change. And that one of the issues we've been facing is that many of the stories that we've been taught have been, have as an underlying assumption that this is it, this is the true story, and this is the only story in some instances. And anyone else who believes anything else is either crazy or bad or an infidel or is going to hell or is, is not going to heaven. So one of the important things about as one creates one's story is to pay attention to this science, pay attention to what we have learned. Now, what are the lessons of the web of life? And use those as the basis for creating the story. And that's where this story essentially came from. One of the books that I researched was Fritjof Capra's book called The Web of Life. And it was essentially an eco-literacy primer of how does the world do things? How does the web of life, how does the cosmos do things? And using that, I use that as the frame for talking about the emergence of the web of life and looking at the certain essences of the universe which include, some of them include this, this essence of emergence and unpredictability, this essence of relation, that everything is related to one another, that, that we are related to one another, that everything is related to everything else, the essence of flexibility, the essence of creation and destruction. Um, so that, to me, was the foundation for what then came out as a more poetic telling of this information, I didn't want to just give information. I wanted to tell it in that metaphorical story story way because it speaks to more deep. It speaks to deeper parts of us. So um, I think, yeah, I, you know, does that answer your question? And that's, that's kind of where the, the essence of it of it comes from. Is that what is the world doing around us? What does science have to say about that? And then using that and, and, and understanding too that science has its own limitations. That we can't know everything. That we come up with a story that is, in a sense, very, you know, it's, it's, it's rather, in a sense, tentative. 
In fact, the epigraph at the front of the book, it actually says, this story of the universe is a young story. It is changing as we discover and rediscover more about ourselves, our planet, our galaxy, our universe, and the infinite. So you must hold this story with a light grasp, much as you would gently hold a bird trembling in your hand, not so tight as to harm the bird, and even willing to release it at the right time and let it fly off into history. That's one of the thoughts that the sage has around you know, creating one's worldview and, and, um, and, and putting, put, bringing all that information together and bring, telling it in a much more heartfelt way. Mm-hmm. So in this book, as part of the format, you do have the, the seeker and you have the sage and there's dialogue between these two all the way through. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I was wondering about this stage and who this stage is. Is, is the mm-hmm. stage modeled after any specific being or entity? Well, I really, I, that was a very fun um, evolution. Um, because what I do is actually in the first 10 pages of the book, and actually some of your listeners may experience this little revelation, you know, what happens when I reveal this now, is that, you know, I talk about the sage and the seeker, and they have this dialogue, and they meet in the coffee shop, they meet here, they talk there. And at a certain point, uh, very, not, not very far into the book, I use the personal pronoun she. And mm. nearly everyone who read early manuscripts circled that word she and said, oh, I didn't realize the sage was a woman. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I did that is I'm a bit of a troublemaker. You know, I like rattling cages. But then it, I realized that wh- who, who the sage is, um, is she became a metaphor for all those voices that have been put down for millennia. So mm-hmm. It also turns out that not only is she, um, you know, there was... That, that she's not only a woman, she's also a woman of color. In fact, mm-hmm. her ancestry is from all six continents. And mm-hmm. it, she became this wonderful metaphor, as I was saying, about all those voices across the ages, across the, the planet, that have been put down and really need to be brought back. And if they ever were part of the whole process, they need to be brought forward. They need to be part of the conversation. Um, and... This was a bit of a surprise to me, um, and because at first, at first, in my mind, when I first wrote the first few drafts, it was two men, and in my mind, it was two white men, oh. and I realized that this is not going to fly. I actually had one person equipped. You know, the part of the problem is that two two white men were part of the problem, really. I mean, that's what we got ourselves into trouble in the first place. So. I realized at a certain point that this isn't going to work. If you try and have put this forward in this way, you're going to miss something so fundamental that this won't, it will mm-hmm. fail. Now, the challenge is, is that I am white, male, you know, fairly you know, well-to-do, middle-class, um, heterosexual. I am on the top of the privilege pile, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I felt... When I thought about that, I was very hesitant to say who to, to think about who I am. Mm-hmm. Who am I to put words into the mouth of someone of a woman of color? I just mm-hmm. wasn't too sure about that. And yet, as I was writing it, it was interesting to see how the conversation flowed. And sometimes I didn't know where the conversation was going. And it was 
so it, it was it was interesting how when I would reflect on it, it's sort of like we were talking earlier that old, those old stories that kind of say you can't do something, you can't do this, right. and yet when you let go of that and you actually fall into the process and let the process mm. take over, it seemed to be it seemed to work out. So I decided, well, let's go for the epic fail. You know, if it's going to fail, let's fail big, <laughs> rather than you know take, take the easy way out, yeah. which you know is not going to work. So that's so. That, do that's you just, did you experience that your writing began to shift? That the tone of the writing began to shift as as the as that character, the sage, began began to be more of the feminine. It shifted over time that, you know, when I realized that I wanted to, you know, that the sage needed to be a woman. The characters, however, at that time, I was more interested in telling the story than I was in character development and having these two characters Mm -hmm. develop. And yet people really, that was the one criticism of the early drafts that people were consistent on, is that these two people, we need more life. We need more more flesh on the skeletons of these Mm -hmm. people. So that's when the sage, there was, there was one particular draft that was a major change in creating the sage into this person who has, yes, ha, brings the feminine aspect. And, and the seeker has a little bit of that in, in himself, too. Um, but brings that out. But brings it out in a way that was very positive. I wanted to leave people with, you know, th- there's already enough bad news out there. There's already yeah. enough trouble. Mm. I wanted to leave people... With, with, a, with give people a character that who was fundamentally happy, fundamentally optimistic, in spite of all the prejudices she faced when she was growing up, and in spite of all the challenges that she sees with in regards to this great transformation that we're going through, you know, the ecological and social justice crises that we're facing. In spite of all that, she tells a story that we belong here. We are part of this process. The mm-hmm. infinite wants us. It worked for 13.8 billion years to have us here. And it, it did it in a way such that it seems like it's perfectly tuned to create life. If one of those little physical laws at the beginning of the universe was off just a little bit, we wouldn't be here. This universe wouldn't be here. And all along the creative process, even to today... It's tuned so perfectly that it wants life. Mm. So that, I really wanted her to embody that, that story. Mm. So, and to me, that does include deep aspects of the feminine, but it's certainly not limited to that, too. There, there are mm. other aspects that, to me, they're, they're still a mystery to me that, you know, what, who is this person? And where did that come from? So, uh, so that gives you a little sense of, uh, of that, uh, that particular thought. So we have more to talk about when we come right back on Meeting Conversation. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations with my very special guest today, David Christopher, the author of The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit. And by the way, David, um, congratulations on the award. You, you, this book won the Nautilus Award, quite coveted in the field of transformation. So congratulations for that. Yes, and actually it won two more awards. Um, the US oh, yeah? Best Book Award um, gave it a gold in the, in the category of spirituality. It, uh, oh. won the, it was the winner in that category, so that was nice. Fabulous. That's fabulous. That's very, very, very telling. So, you know, you talked earlier a little bit about how there's enough bad news in the world, and there are times when it would be easy to give up hope when we mm-hmm. see what is going on, and especially with that technology that connects us into every corner of the world. And so now we not only know what's happening around us, we know what's happening around the world. And, of course, our news media um, it seems to be really... Um, wedded to the idea that only bad news sells and Mm -hmm. that they are somehow doing us all a service by warning us or making us feel fearful or, um, you know, being the ones that, you know, first sounded the alarm, right? And um, so there is a sense that, you know, there is this catastrophic sense of, of life and mm-hmm. where are we going? And it would be easy to become extremely depressed over that. Um, do you have yeah. an interesting perspective 
on all this catastrophe. Talk about that well, a little bit. Yes, and and to and, and let me preface it with the fact that um, this is not an easy story to hold on to in the face of all that. That um, I don't want to put myself out there as someone who has figured out the story and now life is just so full of, of wonder and all that. That's there. Yeah. But I still go to those dark places. It's really hard mm-hmm. not to. Because right. we are widening our circles of compassion. We, are, we do mm-hmm. care about what happens to other people. And at a certain point, one does have to say, I, I can't. You, you can open your heart so much that you lose yourself. And then you start mm-hmm. to, you, you can fall into a depression that, serves nobody if you're right. not careful. And so and that that is something that I think everyone is susceptible to susceptible to and it's something to be aware of. And the the thing that I'm learning is that when when I find myself going to those dark places, I remember to say to myself, "Ah, there it is. There's the valley. And mm-hmm. this will not last forever." And mm-hmm. I've learned that, and that's one of the most important learnings I've had in the past year is that even when you start to go down there, that this will this feeling of despair will pass, and that has been that has been a huge learning for me. And if it doesn't pass, I know what to do. I figured out how to help myself through this process, not to escape from it, because you don't want to just completely ignore what's going on out there. But it's not useful to stay there. So I found the people that I need to connect with, the the, the conversations I need to have, the things I need to do to get myself out of that, so I don't get caught into that, and then turn it into something that's that's clinical. That's that's dangerous. So, but as far as catastrophes are concerned, um, one of the things that the sage talks about is that here we are, and we actually have we, we have the chance to live the most meaningful lives ever lived because of the catastrophes that we face. And one of the metaphors that um, she uses is something that happened about three billion years ago when we as life, and I count us as life, we, we, three billion years ago, figured out how to use photosynthesis. The process, we created photosynthesis as a process that was in response to a famine that was going on on Earth at the time. That we were running out of food and life figured out how to use the sun to create new sources of food and energy. Mm. And, and then what I'll do is let me read a couple of stanzas from the story mm. here that the sage tells. Yet once again, catastrophe. For as the beings who seized starlight to strip apart water and air became stronger and multiplied, they gave off oxygen, a vile and poisonous fire that slowly spread and turned the color of the sky an ominous, deadly blue. For this oxygen... This poison destroyed the wastes of one that might have been food for others, rendered inedible the flesh of earth, and even penetrated the beings, penetrated the beings and killed them. Oxygen wrought havoc across earth. It destroyed swarms of the tiny beings, their food, and their colonies of life. So James Lovelock actually says, he's the, he's the scientist, the NASA scientist, who came up with what's been called the Gaia Hypothesis that Earth is alive in her own right. He said that the oxygen crisis came so close to destroying life on Earth that we, we were, even, even in all the extinctions that we've experienced, that came the closest to destroying all of life. That's what his, his assertion was. We were that close. And yet what happened is that one being figured out how to use oxygen 
as a fuel and turned it from a poison into something that was actually a powerful ally to it. And then from that, um, the, this particular section, it talks about the creation of multicellular beings from that process. We then figured out how to create a complex cell so we could have multicellular beings. So we then created animals and plants within the seas, and those animals and plants crawled out onto the, onto the land, and we had animals and plants and fungi on, and on, the, on the land. And without that catastrophe, without that almost losing everything, once again, you and I would not be here. We and, you and I would not be talking. We would not be on phones. We would not be in, nothing of this would be here. Now, that is a metaphor the sage, sage uses to say, does that sound familiar to what we're going through right now? That these catastrophes that we're facing actually might be the catalyst needed to create an evolutionary leap that, 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 um, that takes us to something that we can't even imagine. It's sort of like a, 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 a butterfly or a caterpillar not even being able to imagine, whose universe is a whole tree has no way to imagine how many miles she will travel when she turns into the butterfly. That's possibly what we're, what we're um, um, going into, this whole process of these crises. So it may be that these catastrophes, these heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching catastrophes that we're creating for ourselves really are going to be the catalysts that show us the way through, this, through these times, that'll, that force us to wake up to... To, um, to this evolutionary leap that we must take. Because we're at a point now where there's not much turning back. And, mm-hmm. um, and that isn't what the web of life likes to do anyway. It wants to create new. It, wants to, it always recovers from, a, um, from an extinction or from a catastrophic event. So, so that, that just gives you a little bit of um, that idea of why is catastrophe might even be a good thing. So do you have a sense of... I mean, this is a very... Uh, <laughs> This is a very modern mind question. Do you have a sense of the timing of this? <laughs> Do you have a sense of, you know, like when all this catastrophe is going to, you know, really... Well, it's, it's already started. It has already started. We're seeing the effects of catastrophic climate change. But the conversation, you know, we have these, this conversation about is it real or is it not, and there's a whole bunch of bugaboo going on that. And we're not even having the conversation yet about the sixth mass extinction on that, on that level. And the sixth mass extinction is one of the as- it, you know, the, the catastrophic climate change is one of the aspects of this catastrophic uh, of um, the sixth mass extinction. It's happening now, and we will see it within a generation. Um, there are scientists out there who said, with it, by the end, by the by the middle of the century, but probably even before the middle of the century, if we do not change, we will lose half of all species on life uh, on Earth, and we can. The web of life cannot cannot take that without radical changes that we may not be able to have a web of life that will support us. It won't be destroyed. Earth won't be destroyed. But it right. may not be able to support us anymore. So right. this is, we're not at the 11th hour. We are at the hour. Mm-hmm. As the sage quips, you know, no pressure. Um, but it may be that's what it takes. It may be that, you know, this is serious. We're serious about this, folks. So go out, find your passion, and find where your passion intersects, what the world really needs, which whether it's paid or not, that's what the world really, really needs right now, is people who are passionate and awake and who are, who are facing the realities crisis 
and with that sense of how can I contribute my passion? What do I love to do that can help this process? This isn't about going, you know, putting on gray clothing and slouching our way towards Bethlehem. No, this is this is about awakening to 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 something fantastic that we we don't even know what we might be creating. So that's really the call that the sage wants to put out there. Uh, do you help people figure out what that passion is for them? You know, I do it informally. Um, <laughs> I don't yet. I, I'm still in the throes of, uh, of promoting a book. And, and it's interesting, as I mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the world may not know how to pay you to do this, um, as you may have faced with some of your clients. A lot of your clients, their passions don't necessarily intersect with ways that pay them for what, right. for what needs to be done. So, you know, I have, I have a, a job that pays for my writing habit. And then I have, you know, all the other relationships, you know, my girlfriend, my friendships and whatnot, that, that you can't let those go. Those can't mm. atrophy. So in between all that, um, I'm still focused on um, creating more, more places for this book to be known. And I hope to. Um, and there are certainly plenty of places to go. When people do ask me about that, I send them to um, one, of the, one of the places that really was the um, genesis, one of the other... Um, uh, catalyst for this book, the Pachamama Alliance, which is an yeah. organization in San Francisco. And they have a game-changing intensive for people who want to quote, become quote-unquote game changers. Yeah. So that's one of the many places that I send people. And I have a number of places on the website that I can offer to people that here are places to go to find your tribe and to find your work. So, um, so that, And so what that, is that website? It's very simple, though. It's www.theholyuniverse.com, and that's spelled H-O-L-Y. So theholyuniverse.com has the listings of where I'll be appearing. I'm going to be going to San Francisco um, in February, Los Angeles in March, and in Oakland in April, and then probably Boulder in May. So I'm out there a little bit, um, but they can also find out how to buy the book if they're interested, and they can also leave comments on you know, the website or Facebook or Twitter and Sign up for some of the little goodies that I have there, too. I also have a sample chapter, too, if people want to take a look at that. That's also at the website, too. Well, as always, David, it's a pleasure to talk with you. We are privileged to have you here with us today. The book is The Holy Universe, A New Story of Creation for the Heart, Soul, and Spirit by David Christopher. Thanks for being here, David. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Remember, everyone, the world can be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 